0: Thank you very much, um, Mr. Balrama and, and Group Captain Vijay Kumar. So, dear friends, this is, um, in a way, as Mr. Balraman, you were mentioning a real homecoming for me. Because, of course, bonds was my first job starting in 1980 uh, in Chennai, Madras, we used to call it then, at the age of 22. And that is where I, I got married we had all our three daughters were born there. I have lots of friends, relatives in Chennai, and of course, uh, all our uh, ex-ponse colleagues. Interestingly, so I lived in Chennai between 1980 and 1992. And those 12 years is the longest I have lived in one place in my life. I have not before or since then lived that long, though in a a year, Denver will overtake uh, that record if I continue to stay in Denver. But I do want to compliment you, Mr. Valram, for starting something with this community of the Ponce veterans. That is well beyond what I could have envisioned. You've brought back this incredibly talented, and successful group who are engaged to connect and share their experiences, um, who are, you know, full of energy to start um, doing things that are meaningful. And unlike all other groups that, I, you know, I'm part of, including IAM and RIT, IIT or, yeah. or high school, etc., it is non-political, non-sensational. And that's your leadership ability, Mr. Warram, that you've been able to craft this with a purpose, which I think uh, is tremendous. You know, I I see, certainly in the U.S., uh, everybody I speak to is fascinated by, you know, which pro or anti-rally they want to talk about. uh, Or, you know, in in India, from what I can see from my friends, they're fascinated by murder investigations or... Kind of whether Anushka did spin bowling or pace bowling, but you know this group has kept itself well above that level, which is really credit to you. And similarly, I, I have to thank uh, my two co-panelists, uh, Tiger and uh, Gopal. Um In a way, the talk that I'm going to give and supported by these two gentlemen is a continuation of a lot of the leadership talks given by Nandu Nankishore, Tiger himself, Kripalu, Atalwara, number of people. And they're all focused on themes, uh, on kind of parts of leadership that are critical. And some of my colleagues have bought more research than I think I'm going to in this speech, because my my talk is going to be most based on my experiences, anecdotes, my, some successes, some failures that have led me to learn things that I'd like to talk about. Um, so uh, I don't think Tiger or Gopal need much more introduction. Uh, they've been supremely successful. But all I can say is I, I had the privilege of working with them 35 odd years back. And even then, it was clear to me that they were the most uh, among the most talented people that I have worked off, worked with in my career, and kind of that was the reason I picked the two of them because I knew that um, you know they, they have been very much part of the success that I've had. So with that, let me get into you know before I get into a framework that I'm going to talk about around which I want to talk about, you know, my adventures in leading self-team and organization. I I think I want to talk a little bit about just myself and my journey, because that'll put in context some of the things I'm going to talk about. So I um, did most of my schooling, in um, this beautiful city you see on the left, uh, which is Jodhpur. So I grew up in a small town, um, almost in a very kind of conservative small community in a very small, relatively small school. And I think that shaped very much a lot of my values. And I think um, those of you who heard Anand Kripalu speak in this series, he spoke about a similar experiences of you know, when you grow up uh, in middle class and in, in, in surroundings that are relatively modest, you grow up with some values and you grow up with family roots. You grow up with um, striving, you know, a willingness to work hard, being personally frugal, but yet wanting uh, great success. Kind of leading to some of the values um, that my other friend Atul Vora spoke about, which is Nishkan, the kind of way of doing, doing business. So from there, I, I, of course, went to IIT and IAM, and, and then it was just a straight line. I joined Ponds, as Mr. Balaram said, in sales. Um, I remained in sales throughout my career in Ponds. So unlike many of my colleagues, I did not move across. So I started in sales. I was an area sales manager in South. Within three years, I was running the South region. And within seven years, I was running the national sales. You know, running a sales force of well over 200 when you're under 30 is, you know, it's quite a responsibility, but it also teaches you a lot, uh, Mr. Welleram, to your point, on leadership. Um, leadership not just of the fact that you're leading these large teams, but also leadership of the responsibility that comes with having those kind of leadership positions. How you have to be authentic, sincere, truly wanting you know, and liking the people and delivering results at the same time. Taking hard decisions when you need to, um, but always doing it with great empathy, great sincerity, and great uh, you know, respect. Um, in 1991, I started having the first, what I call, twist in my career. So I got an offer from his Lever, at that time, who had taken over the ponds operation to run the South region as branch manager for, for Levers. And I thought it was a good stepping stone. It was very much in my kind of zone, both. Kind of running a even much larger sales business, but also it was in in South region that I knew well. So I moved on to that. That still seemed like a straight line. After a couple of years of doing that, I got a call from Harish Manwani, who at that time was kind of running um, marketing in detergents and was just going to take over personal products business in in Lever's. And he said, "Listen, you've had a really spectacular sales career. Um, we think you have great potential, but you know I think it's time for you to do some marketing. But since you don't have any brand marketing experience, you will have to take a demotion to do that. Um, You'll have to go from your current level to two levels below, um, and you will be marketing manager of detergents of some of the detergents." And is that something you want to do? It was a tough decision, right? For somebody who's had constant promotions and is kind of running this big organization, um, it was a tough decision. But nevertheless, I thought it made a lot of sense. If I wanted a career, then it, I had to do this. So this was what the first, time, first of my two, I'd say, demotions, both of which worked out spectacularly well for me. I took that demotion and I went into into Levers, moved to Bombay from Chennai, and started working on brands like um, Surf, Rin, Wheel, and uh, you know basically all market leaders in um, in detergents. It you know was spectacular. I'll talk about some of those uh, experiences as part of my talk, but but it turned out to be you know. Uh, truly, truly an amazing experience. I learned a lot. Not only did I learn a lot, I also was able to, um, I think, contribute a lot to the Levers' success at that time. So, so so, my career with Levers was going extremely well. And Keki Daji said, who was running the business at that time, told me that, you know, it's time and within a year we want you to go run one of our businesses so, you know, it seemed like everything was up and up. At that time, I had an interesting experience. Um, we had a sales conference in Simla. So we had, I, don't, I think it was a North Region sales conference for levers. So we had this sales conference, and a colleague of mine, Ashwini Mehta, who was running kind of some of the real supply chain of the business, and I went from Simla took a small drive to a place called Kufri where we heard there might be snowfall. And we had never seen snowfall in our lives. So we said, let's go see it. On the way back, and it did snow, it snowed a lot. Um, The roads were slippery. And as this taxi with the taxi driver was driving down this road from Kufri to Simla, it seemed like he was slipping. So we kept telling him, maybe we should stop. Maybe we should wait. You know, this, the road seems slippery. So this driver tells, tells us, I have driven these in my, with closed eyes. Don't you worry. I know how to manage. So fine. He kept driving. And at one particular turn, the car started sliding, And I could see this was going over the edge. So I opened the door, told Ashwini, jump Ashwini immediately. And we both jumped literally, and the car went over the cliff. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, the driver, who was rescued actually by army, there was a convoy of army going nearby, did not survive the um, that accident. So anyway, coming out of that, it kind of woke me up to, <laughs> to a number of existential things, as you can imagine. And somehow it struck me that uh, this Life doesn't have to be straight line. Um and that's when I got um, this interesting call from a friend of mine who's a head who told me, do you want to see this was 1997, and do you want to see a Britain handing over Hong Kong from the Mandarin Oriental sitting on top of the Hong Kong terrace? I said I'd love to, but you know, it seemed like a tough thing to do said, so don't worry, somebody's going to pay for everything. You're going to spend five days there. You're going to watch all the ceremonies as a VIP. I said, there must be a catch. I said, yeah, you just have to do a few interviews. And <laughs> you can say no at the end of it. So I went ahead and I, and I did that, quite convinced I'm going to say no. And that was a Coca-Cola interview session. And they came back and they said, well, do you want to be marketing director in India? And I said, why would I do that? I'm already marketing director of Levers on detergents. I'm, I'm probably going to run a business. It doesn't make sense. So after about a few months, they came back and said, fine, you wanted an adventure. How about being marketing director of Latin America based in Buenos Aires? And that's how I started kind of my next phase. And it it just seemed something that that enticed my family and me. And we got into a full-fledged adventure and moved from Mumbai on to um, Buenos Aires. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what Mr. Balaraman said about the challenge of moving to a new country, new language, uh, new company, all at the same time. Uh, Mr. Balaraman told me this two weeks ago that was m- foolish, wasn't it? And the answer is yes, it was really foolish uh, looking back. I mean, it worked out fine, but it could have worked out disastrously too.
1: Yes, it did. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So after that, I've had many twists and turns. I moved to Atlanta. Uh, I went to Southeast Asia, to Philippines, and ran Coke business there. Uh, I've, since um, the last ten years, I've been in Denver, um, which is where you see now. I have plenty of snow, more snow than I <laughs> than I'd imagined. Um, I ran the international business. I was CEO of international for Molson Coors. In the last two to three years, I was chief growth officer, trying to really do some of the newer, kind of more cutting-edge things. I ran M&A for them. And since January this year, I've set up my own business of igniting business growth, really with my passion of trying to get businesses across the world uh, to get to growth. So that's my background. The reason I'm giving you this in detail is kind of sets the stage of some of the stories that I'm going to speak about uh, as I think about leadership.
2: You are speaking from Seattle, right?
0: I'm right now speaking from Seattle. Uh, I have to say, it, it, I started at 5:30 a.m. this call. So at times, uh, if you see me reaching out for a, for my cup of tea, it's because it's still very dark outside and it's 5:30. Uh, yeah. I'm here in my uh, with my grandkids, who are one year old. So that's why I'm here in Seattle. So um, so today's topic um, is really about how do you get sustainable breakthrough success through what I call an integrated model. Often, when you look at leadership frameworks, it's either about how you become a great leader, which is what I call living leadership or leading the self, or it's often about how do you get enterprises. To become great, it's leading organizations, leading teams, or it's about how do you kind of focus and become kind of a more of an expert, right? But I believe that real breakthrough success happens when, who, you know, whether you are a CEO, whether you are a starting in your career, whether you're mid-career, whether you're whichever stage you're in, if we can keep these three things integrated and keep all of them in mind; they're all individual pieces for leadership, um, but they need to be integrated, and that creates a sustainable breakthrough success and This is very much from a corporate and a business or a or an enterprise of any kind uh, perspective versus uh, completely personal right otherwise, I would add things like spiritual or other areas to this, but you know essentially, I find if you can lead yourself you know truly in terms of being a leader, if you can have the ability to lead an organization successfully and build expertise in you, and, and this combination is what creates sustainable breakthrough. And so that's, that's kind of the topic um, that the three of us are going to talk about. I'm going to talk majority, and then my two panelists will, you know, will intervene when they think they have a point to make, or else uh, as well as in certain breaks that we're going to have. So I'm going to start actually without getting into too much detail about leading teams and organizations and how do you build expertise. And I'm going to do that without getting into too much detail and spend more of my time on living leadership, leading self, which will happen after we take a break and and do some questions. So let me start with leading teams and organizations and basically enterprise leadership. I want to touch on three things, and this is really based on my experience. This is not a framework that I've taken from any, any book at this time, but this is something that I've kind of distilled based on my experience. First is that to be able to lead an organization, you need to be able to lead people and you need to be able to set an inspiring culture. And, inspi- and inspiring is an important word versus motivating or kind of a culture that's performing because I think inspiring, I believe, uh, leads to all of that. The second piece is um, the business needs to have a commercial edge, needs to have like um, true commercial edge on diff- and different aspects and we'll speak about it. And without that commercial edge, and commercial includes whether it's uh, supply chain or production or, or sales or marketing or brands or Innovation, but it needs to have an edge in terms of what it what it does commercially. And organizations need to look at the future. They need to shape, not, not just have a competitive advantage for the present, but need to be able to continuously think about shaping the future. Right? It is not just meeting today's demand, but thinking about how you're going to shape what the future is going to be anticipate it, but not even anticipated create it, right shape it so those are the three areas that I'm going to speak about in this this section so starting with people um, and an inspiring culture I find that four of these things that I've seen uh, in my experience have worked tremendously in every organization that has been successful and have not worked in during the times or the periods when our organization has not been successful. One is inspiring vision. Second uh, is is a balance between flair, you know, an organization having that kind of flair to do things versus a rigor and a process and an ability to kind of manage things and having that balance. Um, Being able to trust, empower, but also hold people accountable and continuing to invest in future capability. So th- those are the four areas. Uh, let me tell you a couple of kind of my experiences and stories on each of these. Starting with vision, and I, you know, all of you have heard a lot of visions, a lot of different um, organizations that have used vision tremendously in terms of how they have grown their business, how they have unified their business, how they have created huge leaps. I want to talk about Coca-Cola in that regard. Now, Coca-Cola uh, is an interesting organization. At the time I joined, which was 1996, um, interestingly, it had only three CEOs in, in the previous close to 100 years. Um, so very long-term CEOs of created vision, and truly kind of built the business. Thereafter, it's had a series of changes. So the, the time that Coca-Cola truly became successful was during the World War II and in the aftermath of World War II. And it came with the then-CEO Robert Woodruff's vision, which was essentially that I want to have a Coke available wherever there is an American soldier at five cents, no matter which end of the world, and that they should have a cold Coca-Cola available to them at, at, for five cents, wherever they are. And to create, make that vision real, they went into 130, 140 countries in a matter of two years, set up bottling plants, set up all kinds of refrigeration and kind of cold availability, and created Coca-Cola to be available in all these countries, which explains why Coke has been far more successful globally and internationally, even though they had a much much more of a fight in the U.S. with Pepsi. Because after World War II, the American soldiers went everywhere in the world, and Coke followed them or, or preceded them in many cases to all these countries. Once that vision was kind of reached, the vision, which came by the next year, Robert Togo who was running Coke at the time I was joining, he died soon after, but, was that he wanted Coke within an arm's reach of desire of every human being in this world. So that is a simple vision, but it has a tremendous um, sense of purpose for the organization. So both of these created a sense of purpose. right? We want Anybody who wants a Coke, has a desire for Coke, have a, a ability to get the Coke cold within an arm's reach. I mean, think about it, right? Now I'm sitting here, I want a Coke within an arm's reach. I want to be able to get a Coke. And that created everything from, you know, how do you get to every corner, every village, every town? How do you get cold refrigeration in every single of these places? How do you create the desire? That that people need to you know people want it, and that led to this tremendous second golden period for Coke between ninety four ninety five to about ninety eight. Uh, I think they market cap went up four to five times during this period, and the, the business really exploded just by following this, and then making it real everywhere, and it instilled a sense of purpose in all of us and it's kind of one of the reasons I joined Coca-Cola. I felt there was a tremendous expression of what the company wanted to do. With that, I want to move to flair and political. So, uh, here I'm going to talk about the story of Surf Excel. This is when I went into instant Lever from Ponds. Ponds is very much a business that had a lot of flair People were in par, people had a lot of flat, people would do a lot of things. And at that point in time, it was very much, much more about rigor, process, approvals, steps, uh, market research, uh, recheck the market research, uh, very much about rigor, about what they did. And At that time, PNG was entering India and we, we knew they were going to come up with with tremendous products, which Coca-Cola, uh, sorry, <laughs> Hindustan Lever, um, over time, because they're cost optimized their formulas, may or may not be able to match. So, this is an interesting story. So, I had tremendous, again, folks working with me. I had um, Rohit Chava and Vipul Chavla, both of whom are presidents of that business right now, working with the, in the marketing team. And we, we discovered that literally because one of, one of our brand people were visiting a printer press, and we discovered a proof of a uh, you know, detergent launched by p g lying there, which was shameful of them to have <laughs> not taken care of it, which gave us an idea of what they might be doing. So at that point in time, it is clear that if you want to match them, we will have to do something spectacular and do something fast. And luckily, you know, at that point in time between um, Harish Arun Adhikari, who was there, and um, Kiki Dadi said, who was were kind of running this business, said, you have total freedom, Candy, but don't lose this war. <laughs> And within three weeks, we formulated, tested, and within a month, we were able to create an absolutely spectacular new brand, Surf Excel. Before that we had only Surf. that could match and beat what we expected from PNG. In parallel, we created um, advertising sales plans. And none of these had to be checked because we had no time to check and market research. These had to be done with tremendous amount of internal, kind of this seems right based on our experience. Let's go do it. Let's earn the side of doing it better rather than worse. And you know, so there was a lot of flair in that, and that truly um, helped us to actually preempt PNG's launch, and. Actually, at that point in time, after about a year, PNG kind of scaled back their launch because of of both the power of the distribution of levers, tremendous product advantage we had, the fact that we were first in into the market before them with these next generation products, and all of this happened within weeks. Um, Of course, we did not. we, We do need the rigor balance to my point because the demand just exploded. At that point in time, we had these sachets for SurfXL and the demand just exploded and we couldn't do it, right? We hadn't realized that these sachets, which had enzymes, was creating this pollution in factories because the enzyme was was flying all over and there wasn't enough rigor to kind of get the... So, So all the rigor had to come. Without that, we wouldn't have been successful over time. But that flare helped us truly take off and prevent this huge competitor. This balance between flair and rigor, I find to be uh, an important piece, and it varies based on business, it varies based on life cycle, but it's important for leaders to keep thinking about as they build their organization. I'm not going to talk much more about trust, accountability, invest, and in future capabilities, except to say that Ponds is a, is the best example of that, right? And here are some of the people I spoke about that I've worked with um, and many more. I have not, I could not put everybody's picture here. But but I think pawns during, you know, second half of 70s and 80s had this uh, huge ability to get the best talent, invest in this capability, and then trust them, empower them, but hold them accountable. And I think uh, there's no doubt that it, it created this pipeline of success for pawns. During those periods, so I'm going to kind of stop there and see if any of our panelists want to add anything to that before we go to the next subject.
1: Andy, I have a, uh, a comment to make. You know, having worked uh, both in Ponds and Hindustan Lever for uh, over 20 years, um, you know, one of the questions that uh, that comes to my mind is what creates uh, resilience in an institution or in an organization? What gives it longevity? And, you know, you talk interestingly about flair and rigor, and, you know, I've always called it the entrepreneur professional, you know, within, uh, and I've seen that in in droves in in Hindustan labour, which is if you were, or or even Pawns, and I was a very young manager then, if you're completely an entrepreneur, you could sort of lose sight of governance and processes. If you're completely a professional, uh, then you can become very bureaucratic. But when you have this combination of entrepreneur professional, then I think that creates uh, magic. So I wonder whether you have any thoughts on what creates a lasting, because, you know, Coke is 128 years old, Hindustan Lever is 87 years old. What makes these companies go on and on with really solid performance?
0: Uh, firstly, Gopal, uh, I think that, that is, uh, that's a great way of expressing kind of what I was trying to talk about in flair and rigor balance uh, of being entrepreneur and professional. Uh, so, you know, there is a, a fairly kind of uh, old, relatively old business book by a person called Dr. Adesas. It's a fairly boring book. It's a thick book, but he talks about corporate life cycles. And he talks about four things in that. Um, P, which is about performance culture, I mean, making sure that you're focused on kind of results and things like that. A which is administration, which is kind of this professional what you're talking about, and the rigor that I'm talking about, which is a e which is the entrepreneurial side of the business, which you see a lot in startups but you don't see in big businesses, and I which is integration, that is the business integrated well enough internally or it starts creating politics, politics, and divisions and silos so and he's done a lot of research, and I think I agree with this it's this. The organizations that last need to watch for any one of these kind of performance orientation, administration, entrepreneur, and integration, any one of them to become dominating. You have to watch as you, as you mature. Initially, when you start up, the, obviously the entrepreneur part of it needs to dominate. Over time, you need to have a balance of those. But if you don't have a balance, if you have too much integration, it becomes like a club, right? Uh, I remember there were companies in Calcutta, British company that used to run <laughs> like that. That uh, I remember, you know, it was greatly integrated, but it was built like a club and they all became fossils, right? Or they become over politicized or they become, you know, too much focus on performance so so leaders need to watch for the balance between pae and iss theory and I, I and i tend to believe in that does that make sense Kopa? what do you yeah,
1: yeah that makes sense you know i've always i mean for i think with uh, with hindustan lever i think there's also uh, and and I, and this was true for ponds i mean i worked with NVT. NVT was my first boss the apprenticeship you get in these companies uh, for young people coming in is just you know unbelievable and then of course you throw them different challenges different roles countries categories businesses different contexts and that kind of brings out this entrepreneur profession so um i, I agree with, i agree with the points make. It. it's a great framework
3: and and uh can if i can just so one gopal i was your uh, I, I you know you call apprenticeship i was getting my own apprenticeship i was too young to be to be <laughs> an apprenticeship or anyone else but uh uh, I have one reaction, Candy, and a and a question on the Surf Excel aerial uh, story. Uh, I wonder if in today's world, uh, when you talk about rigor, process, you know, methodology, etc., and and sometimes that takes time, and there's a search for at least some degree of knowing all the answers before you jump and do something. An organization jumps and does something, whereas your Surf Excel story indicated hey, guys, I couldn't follow a process. I had to quickly iterate and hope it worked and then come back and say, okay, this piece didn't work. So it feels like a, a agile scrum methodology. Do you think that the world of today is demanding much more of the Surf Excel methodology and is actually probably even more important because speed is becoming more and more important? Um, I have
0: no doubt, Tiger, that is true. In every field, by the way, including uh, whether you're, I mean, Governor of California, as you know, Tiger yesterday said no more cars and, or gas cars after twenty thirty five. But you know these things are moving on. All, even age old industries now fast, right? So, but you you are a bigger expert than I am on agile Scrum because I know you're kind of an expert on that. But I agree with you one hundred percent. That agile kind of methodology is uh, uh, is it, the way to go. And and, and then, really then the great.
3: question
0: and then the question organizations yeah. are the expert on it.
3: No, and the question that I grapple with a lot is how do you, how do you drive it without an instigator or an agent provocateur? You're running into um, the information that you found in, in the artwork somewhere was the provocation for, hey, let's do something with Self-Excel. If that hadn't happened, so how do you do that without any provocation from the outside is a, a tough one. It is,
0: it is. That, which is why leadership is so important. Right, it needs to be provoked by leaders,
2: essentially. That that is the f- flair part that he talked about. <clears throat> I I am impressed with by what Gopal called the uh, uh, entrepreneur professional. Uh, in fact, camps where I worked as a chairman for uh, about twenty years uh, had that flair professionalism. I mean, uh, it it was very entrepreneurial. Yet it was very strongly professional. I mean it would ne- whenever it did anything there was discipline. Uh, uh, and I had been a director in a few uh, technology companies where there was a lot of entrepreneurship without the professionalism and I used to feel extremely uncomfortable. I mean the, you see without the rigor, it's uh, very difficult to work. I mean uh, it's a very high risk environment.
1: You're, you're... I, I, I want to just add one point, Mr. Baran, with your permission. I think, Candy, you know, you talked about, uh, uh, or I was talking about apprenticeship. And I do want to say something personal about you. Uh, I remember when you were at the GSM and I was a lowly management trainee running around in uh, different parts of Tamil Nadu. Uh, I would send a weekly or a fortnightly report to Tiger and to you. And I remember getting back those reports with your neat handwriting. You know, you'd read the whole thing and with your comments on it, which I think really makes a difference. And I think this is what creates lasting uh, you know, institutions. It really creates the apprenticeship that I think is so important.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's it. That's it. All right. So uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to move on here. Um, you know, um, so cultural sensitivity is the other one, right? Whether Whether you create an organizational culture or you create kind of a country-based culture. And each country, as you know, uh, has its own culture. And as I've worked in many different countries, I find this is an interesting uh, question and topic. And it seems like different um, companies operate differently on this particular kind of dimension. Um, Tiger, I know you have a better story on this, why don't you talk about it?
3: No, and and, and um, what struck me when I spent uh, my years at GE, uh, which is where I spent a lot of time outside traveling across the globe to the various businesses, it was strange mm-hmm. for me to walk into Japan after having, on my first trip to GE, when I went through an indoctrination of what it is to do business in Japan and be told, this is the Japanese culture, this is how one is supposed to behave and this is what you're supposed to say and so on. And consensus driven decision making, all the kind of stuff. And then you walk in there and you spend a week there and you realize that GE in Japan is more like GE anywhere. Um, and you realize that actually there is such a thing as corporate and organizational culture, particularly for companies, one, that think it's important for them and two, that are global, that over time, sometimes supersedes local culture. In the end, it becomes a nuanced balance. Uh, because when you deal with the outside world, you have to be local. But sometimes when you're dealing inside the company, you find organizational culture becomes really strong. So, like many things in life, it's about balance, and that's a learning that I had. Uh, you know, going through, I had no opportunity to go through Unilever, but going through Citibank and then uh, GE, and now the current company that I'm in, Genpak, that's a big thing that we that we focus on.
0: Yeah, and and, and my experience is somewhat similar because. And I'll talk a little bit about all the big change when I went to Argentina from India to around South South America. But actually, the bigger difference, I believe, was just going to Coke, which is a, such a different company, such a different culture than it was actually even this huge change uh, that I had. But let's move on. I'm, I'm just doing this because I want to uh, make sure that uh, we spend enough time on questions and on all aspects. I know that we are also holding you up from an interesting IPL game that's coming up, so I'm going to keep the, the pace going. So, commercial edge, I think a lot has been spoken about. a Lot has been um, kind of said even on these series. Uh, so, I'm not going to. None of us are going to talk a lot about commercial edge, obviously, but it's really, really important uh, from a consumer product company perspective. I see criticality of the experience of consumer, engagement of the customers that you deal with, and the effectiveness of the organization. And, and I kind of use it in a kind of simple way, which is earn more, use less, and invest wisely. So as kind of the making sure you have a commercial edge, but I'm going to skip this section, and again, in the interest of time, and focus more on the kind of leadership aspects of, of the business. The One area I did want to speak about Uh, And we had the session just recently by Neera Chandra on change and innovation. Um, You know, obviously, innovations, it's important to have all kinds of innovations. It's important to innovate your core, because ultimately that is your business. It's important to leverage your core, but go beyond the edge. So you're building new capabilities. And then it's also important to be disruptive completely new capabilities, new markets, new kind of businesses. That makes sense, depending on the corporate. So I want to talk a little bit about one that actually I consider myself um, having failed in, um, having not influenced the organization enough to do one of the edge innovations. Mm -hmm. So, um, for those of you in the U.S., you probably are very aware of this category. For the rest of you, may not be. Um, this is this new category in the U.S. on alcoholic, low-alcoholic drinks called hard salsaps. It's basically it's like a beer, but think about a. It's made like a beer. It's made from made from kind of uh, not from distilling, but by fermenting, and it is low alcohol. It's fermented sugar but it is um, essentially fruit flavor, right? So it's fruit flavor drinks. It tastes like a fruit drink, but it's alcoholic. This category essentially started about four years, five years ago, four years ago. 2016 was the first year where White Cloud, which is the market leader, was launched. And um, the last 12 months, it's a $5 billion category and growing at 100% a year. Okay. It's likely to to be even if it slows down on growth, it's going to be a ten billion dollar category. It's, it's a tremendous, huge category, right? And White Claw and Truly, the two brands you see here, um, are own between them seventy five percent. And the reason I bring this up is now in an organization like & Coors, and, and I was chief growth officer, so it was my responsibility. Um, I was kind of international, when this happened. And then I moved to become chief growth officer to try and drive this. I found it internally impossible to convince people that this was a category that's going to grow. People said, we have seen these, there have been fads, it's going to come and go, we should focus on beer, we should focus on the core, let's not touch it, this will come and go, it'll die, people will lose money. And eventually, I mean, we did develop a pipeline and it, it did get launched uh, in 2018 twenty nineteen but it was late we were two years too late in 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 the in this um, category. It needed new capability, it needed new investments because you ferment sugar out and malt and needs different kind of equipments, different kind of work so but here is an example where if we had launched this edge innovation. What's in course would have been in a different place than it is today. And it lost out on this. Um, So when you go to these kind of edge innovations, disruptive innovations within a larger organization, my learning has been that you've got to take a stand and we'll talk about breakthrough a little bit later, much, much harder than I think uh, certainly I did. And I, Um, This is one of the areas where I think, as I think back, is something that I believe um, I listen to conventional wisdom versus go to where I kind of felt looking at the market and looking at the early reactions. Um, So, you know, I I just want to point out that you often learn a lot from failures, and this is one of them that uh, personally I feel. And it's important that you learn to say you've got to look on some of these kind of ways. you step out and go beyond. And I'm sure, in uh, I don't know if either of you have got experiences of these kind of edge innovations, but these are important pieces. And if you miss it out, then you miss it out. Okay, let's move on. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about shaping the market. So this is going to be another exciting thing. As you know, I have moved my careers, as you can see, um, from detergents in levers to, to Coke to beer. And then uh, over the last year, I've helped Molson Coors launch one of the first cannabis-infused beverages. So as you can see, I'm moving up the ladder of uh, kind of... <laughs> Uh, and products that are that make you feel happy <laughs> so uh, this, so having learned from the example that I told you that we didn't do, it was clear that regulations in the u s and Canada were loosening up on ability to get cannabis. However, they were highly uh, difficult in the sense of quality and the kind of products that were being done. Most people didn't want to smoke anyway. Most people didn't want to wait. So we came up with this concept of saying, like you drink a beer or you drink a, a low alcoholic beverage, how can you create a low cannabis infused beverage? So of the alcohol, it has cannabis, and but extremely low kind of doses. So you enjoy it. You never get intoxicated tremendously unless you first misuse it. And that, and and during this set of products that we've launched um, with a joint venture called Trust Beverages, I I had like, as you can imagine, huge amount of internal barriers that you had to go through, huge amount of um, external barriers that you had to go through, but my whole learning on this was having learned from the previous one that I had again done us, that we were not going to miss out on this. And we were able to convince our board of, and Molson Coors happens to be a family-controlled company, to convince the families, convince our management, uh, get the regulators to approve the kind of products we want to launch. And, and these products are available right now only in Canada, which is the only place that's federally legal. Um, but it is going to shape uh, over the next 5, 10 years, I believe, the future of what U.S. and Canada beverages is going to look like. So, so it's not yet there. So it's, it is still early early days, but it's an example where you, you are starting to shape the market, right? It's non-existent market. It doesn't exist but it's going to start shaping what people are going to drink over time. So, you know, I, I think it's important to think through all of them. How do you innovate? How do you kind of truly change and get to the kind of step change? And then how do you truly disrupt? And and when you disrupt, you've got to shape the market, not just it's, – it's not disruption as defined by you. It's disruption as defined by the market. So with that, I'm going to kind of um, actually even skip the leading expertise portion And I'm going to move to kind of stop here for some questions from the audience. Uh, Any comments, uh, Tiger Gopal? And then we'll move to from there to um, to the next part.
2: Vijay, uh, would you like to pick one or two questions?
4: Group captain. Yes. Vijay, are you there? Yes, I'm there. So, yeah.
2: Can you pick a couple of questions for Anand?
4: It's one, uh, the couple of them. In fact, we have over over thousand five hundred viewers uh, watching the program now live on our YouTube, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Now, there's a question which has come from. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Tarun Garg actually. He says, What is the most important attribute which makes one successful in leading self, team, and organization? He also asked another question. He says, How these qualities make someone capable to lead uncertainties?
0: So, what is the last word I didn't hear? Capable Uncertainty. Of
4: Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Unc- Uncertainty. Yes.
0: Yeah. I, I think that, that's a great, fantastic question, uh, Tarun. Um, And hello, Tarn. Hope you're well. Um, Now, we're going to go into leadership, self-leadership, which is, I think, the most important part. And, you know, I I strongly believe one of the most important parts of leading the self, which is very much the next topic we're going to speak about, is what I call being out of the box. Now, the box are set of constraints you set or put on yourself. These constraints come from uncertainty, come from fear, come from ambiguity, and leads one to think about uh, things like, you know, uh, how how do I survive? Or how do I um, kind of um, get something I want versus leading with with the purpose which is out of the box? And I think uh, it is not something that's, it's natural for, for humans and therefore leaders to feel those and feel in the box. Uh, it feels often uh, very difficult. But if you think about how, where am I? Is my mind state, my attitude state um, out of the box? Or am I in the box? And why am I in the box? Uh, I think it helps you to get out of the box. And we'll talk about that right now. A little bit more in detail.
4: Uh, there's another question from uh, Miss Uma Parmeshwari. He says, uh, "Sir, how do you believe in trust? Introducing innovative products will reach in the market. How are you classifying consumer behavior? How can you be able to predict the success in these cases?"
0: Uh, thank you, Uma. Uh, I think that you can't predict when you're shaping the market. You can't predict success. Um, and this is one of the challenges why you find it difficult to do these things. Um, people, if you look at, I don't know, think about Tesla launching electric cars, you couldn't have predicted the success of it, right? It's impossible when it was launched. It seems obvious now in hindsight, but you can't predict it. So you, you have to have a strong sense of um, belief, you have to be able to kind of have a strong sense of vision of the future. Uh, you have to be agile, and we'll talk about that while you're doing that. And you know, you, and you have to go make that happen. Now, will trust beverages and cannabis-infused beverages be successful? I can't predict for 100% sure, but the reason I believe is a number of reasons. Right? One, cannabis kind of has similar effects as, as a low-alcohol beverage has. Second, it has a It doesn't have a lot of the after effects, doesn't have hangovers. It doesn't have any, you know, health issues. So there are a number of reasons why I believe it will be successful, but one has to wait and see, right, how it will be successful. And you have to have strong belief that you can shape that market and be the pioneer in the market because there's no doubt that pioneers succeed. And, you know, so that's something that you can get some indication from consumers, but as many people have said, as I mean, Ford famously said in the 1930s, if I asked consumers, they wanted a faster horse cart, right? But he gave them a car, right? And that's not what consumers will say they want, right? So, so some of these you can't predict, uh, but you have to go with, with that strong sense of feeling, understanding what kind of the hidden need is, not the stated need is of the consumers. If you're okay, we'll move, we'll move on, group captain.
4: Yeah, go on. Oh, please go ahead.
0: So, uh, very much talking about what I've just started talking about, which is accurate motivation, out of the box, growth mindset and breakthrough thinking, which I think is really important when you lead yourself. So, out of the box, as I already kind of mentioned in answer to that question, you end up constraining yourself, putting yourself into a box, right? Sometimes because you think you can't do it. Sometimes because you want to survive. Sometimes you put yourself in a box because you think you're doing it as an obligation. Not because, you know, it's an obligation, I have to do it. Or you're doing it because you really desire something versus being out of all of these human needs, but being doing it because... You believe in it. And typically, when you think about people who are out of the box, who didn't care about survival or didn't do it as an obligation, you think of these great leaders, right? As Gandhi or Mandela or Martin Luther King, who, who, who didn't do it with a kind of a box mentality and went through all these issues. But of course, when you're in business, you're not thinking. Ex- Sorry?
1: Sorry, apologize. Go on, go on.
0: You know, you're usually not thinking of such lofty things. You're talking about, uh, you know, more mundane, simpler things. And um, I, I want to talk about the time when I was in the box. Uh, and um, and it took me a little while to kind of think through this and, and kind of get out of the box. So as I explained to all of you, I went to Ponds, I, I ran marketing in Latin America. From there, I moved to Atlanta to, to be the global head of marketing of the drink brands for Coke. This was, you know, at a time when Coke was the most valuable brand uh, in the world, as per brands surveys. So it was a tremendous role. It was probably the most exciting marketing job in the world. Um, and, um, but Coke was in trouble. It had not, it was declining over the last many years. Coke meaning the soft drink portfolio, but specifically Coca-Cola trademark, which had Coca-Cola and Diet Coke. And at that point in time, um, it was clear to me that we, Coca-Cola had to do something different. And I proposed something, and I'll talk about that in the breakthrough thinking. And inevitably, there were a series of changes because Coke was not successful. Coke was declining there. So the first gentleman on the top left is Doug Ivester. We missed out on buying Gatorade, which, which was something that came to Coke on the table, but he felt was not needed. And Pepsi bought it. And then, of course, um, that turned out to be quite a quite a mistake. And then subsequently from there, it moved to Doug Daft, came in from Asia. Um, who was rather volatile? I think I, in this forum I will be polite and say he was volatile, and um, he couldn't manage it. So nobody was making decisions. they had very poor uh, people. They brought with them. They brought with them entourages, and all of them were focused on. Not just them were in the box. They created everybody else in the box. As a result. I kind of decided this was not working for me and I was because there was nothing, nothing that I could do that I could launch. Inevitably I was getting these volatile reactions from my bosses and CEOs. And it was like end of the road for me till eventually uh, Neville's that you see on the bottom left came on and he started creating this whole concept actually to this, this model that i 'm talking about in a way I learned from Neville as well, and he started creating this purposeful organization uh, starting created back into a business that that made sense, and we were able to do inevitable things. I think Koch lost out not only the get ac- acquisition I think they lost out on doing quite a few things during these black years because as a leader when you 're in the box, which these gentlemen were it also creates everybody else in the box working for you. Um, similar thing happened um, more personally. Uh, I had a big acquisition that I was leading for Coors. It was the first time Olson Coors was going out of kind of its core market, and we, we bought the central and Eastern European business for three and a half billion dollars in, in 2012. And in this case, I was in the Box for personal reasons, I you know had some health challenges in the family, and I just started doing this deal as a kind of I have to do it for obligation, but I really wasn't being able to focus and then you know kind of I remembered this framework and I decided I was not going to do it i came back, I flew back from London, back to Denver attended first to. So what was pressing on the family side, which was putting me in the box. And then I, you know, with the support of my family, I was able to feel free and go back. And we were able to do this deal, which, is, which transformed Molson course, eventually. And I think it's important to, you know, this is more about self-awareness to know where you are and whether or not you're able to kind of get out of the box yourself. And if you think about why you're in the box, why you're having fear, Why you're trying to survive or why you feel this is an obligation rather than something you really feel deep inside. I think it's an important piece for leaders um, to constantly think about. It is very similar to what Atul Wara mentioned as Nishkam kind of values that you have in his talk. And that's something you can keep questioning as you go through. And everybody will go through these cycles of going in the box and out of the box. I also want to talk a little bit about growth mindset, of course, now made famous recently by uh, Satya Nadella in, in, in Microsoft, of course, came from Carol Dweck. Uh, I think Microsoft has been, has grown 10 times in market cap over the last, uh, I don't know how many years, six, seven years, um, and truly has, has, I think, transformed itself with the growth mindset. And, and in a smaller way, I felt that, Mr. Balram, as I went from Leavers to, to Coke, I, I talked about the differences in culture. But remember, I was you know, moving from cricket to football, from eating the kind of the thali meal to nothing but barbecues available for food, nothing else, literally, yeah. Yeah. from Spanish to English. And there was this interesting um, episode I had. So I went there in January 1998. That's when I joined Coke marketing director, there was a World Cup in France in 1998. Coke was the big sponsor. All my countries in South America were football crazy, right? This World Cup was the biggest thing. So we were in the middle of a lot of market research, trying to understand consumers. We created this huge, you know, we wanted to create a tremendous campaign. And we had this advertising agency, one of the most creative I worked with in my life, uh, based in Buenos Aires, called Aguja and Bacheti. And there was this, finally, here is the creative presentation. So Ramon Aguja comes up, he's got this, he's the creative head, great flair. He he presents this tremendous creative campaign. And, uh, you know, I, I hear all of that with my team, and I say, that's that's a tremendous campaign, but you know, you're missing this thing we learned about audience wanting to be as much part of it as the players. You know, I think you're missing this, you know, in the, in the way you're expressing it. So he he looks at me and says, Candy, you're so insightful. That's what it says in Spanish. <laughs> <What time? laughs> of course, everything was being translated to me, right? In English. So I thought about it at that time. This was February 10th or 15th, uh, of 1998, and I realized I could not do my job because, you know, I just couldn't do my job. He said, well, that's exactly what the words say in Spanish. (laughs) Wrongly translated for you. So I said, fine, let's do the campaigns, which turned out to be quite successful. But And then I turned around, I told my team, it was a challenge, right? Both mindset is about challenges to help you grow, right? It's about saying I can learn what I want. And I told my team, okay, we are in end of February. I know you're doing a lot of work because you're doing the work in Spanish, translating English for me, uh, etc. From June one, we will stop working in English. We will only talk working. So I set myself this this goal, saying in three months we will only do in Spanish.
1: Wow.
0: <laughs> said it to my team, and it, you know, I called it town hall to control my team, but all these people, and you know, of course that meant I had to do a lot of things, right? Apart from kind of reading reading my lessons and, and working with the teacher, I stopped listening to English radio, English TV, I stopped looking at English newspapers, completely cut myself off. If I understand a lot not Spanish newspapers, Spanish news as I'm driving to office. And um, Sure enough, I mean, a certain thing happened. One of our distributors, you know, started cursing one of my kind of uh, regional marketing people in one of the other countries. This was in the end of May. Uh, in Spanish, thinking I didn't know it, right? <laughs> and in a, and I kind of, that was the time that also broke my barrier. And I stood up and I started speaking to him in Spanish and said, no way in hell you'll ever speak to my person like that. And... <laughs> And oh. it kind of broke my internal barrier, and I was able to thereafter to move. And, you know, this is a kind of idea of a personal growth, but this is true in general of a number of things that, we, that all of us do and businesses do and how you lead businesses about kind of learning on things that are challenges but then using it to grow. And, and Gopal, I know that you had a lot of experiences, growth mindset. Why don't you give us uh, some of your experience here?
1: Uh, Thanks, Candy. I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've been in Airtel now for eight years and uh, uh, we've seen a brutally competitive market. So about three and a half, four years ago, uh, the new player entered, put in about $50 billion of CapEx in just a matter of three to four years. Very deep pockets. Um, We had invested about 40, 45 billion over almost 25 years. And for almost nine to 10 months, they gave away services completely free. Completely free. And you you don't see that anywhere else in any other market. A lot of regulation went against us, favored the uh, new player. And in the process, eight players got bankrupted. Uh, The number two and number three player merged uh, to become the number one player for a brief while. But then went rapidly from 48% market share down to 23% and continuing to fall. Um, And through this, we started at about 30% market share before the battle began. And today, we are at a lifetime high of about 34 and a half, uh, with Mm -hmm. our business going through digital channels. We have over 150 million digital users and about 1,500 strong digital team. And if I look at, you know, it's obviously been a crazy period for me personally. And if I look at the, uh, you know, the lessons that I learned, I think the first lesson is, you know, what we talked about uh, earlier, which is, how do you think like an owner? Uh, which is this entrepreneur professional piece that I've talked about. And I think the real difference here is that if you look at a professional, typically they look for certainty. And in our context, everything was changing, right? So, you know, how do you focus yourself on input over output? Uh, what, we changed our metrics. Uh, for the, for forever, the entire operating teams used to be measured on uh, revenue growth and margin. But we knew revenue was going to fall and we knew margin was going to fall. So what should you target them on? And one of the things that, you know, um, after a lot of debate, uh, we decided to say, let's target them on inputs, which is how do you hold your cost? How do you drive a better experience? And as a consequence, how do you gain market share, even in a compressed market? The second thing I learned is that, you know, I've been eight years as CEO. And I think Tiger and I were talking about that earlier. You become part of the woodwork. you uh, You get to a position of complacency. And so I had this ritual for the last five and a half, six years, where every December, in the fourth week of December, I take a week off and I think to myself that I've been fired. And I say, you know, if I've been fired, how do I look at this business afresh? And what do you really need to do in this business? And initially, I wrote it to myself. And then I decided, let me send it to the chairman of the company. And now I send it to the team as well. So it kind of breaks down that defensiveness and I think creates the right uh, recognition of the context. Uh, the second thing I learned is, uh, Candy, that you really need to be f- very, very flexible. I mean, you're in a, we're in an ecosystem. The technology is changing rapidly. Our customers are changing even more so. And so, you know, I believe we need an emergent strategy. Nothing is certain. So you've got a broad direction of where you're going, but you've got to navigate the environment so that you get there. And you can only do this if you're really, truly curious. So how do you put into your your system? Uh, and for me personally. You know, the the rituals that you need to actually uh, unleash that curiosity. Uh, how do you get inspired from others? So, you know, I, whether it's expeditions, visiting other companies, vendors, equipment providers, and of course, customers. And I, even today, I do, you know, despite COVID, at least two days of virtual market visits across the, across the country. And the third thing I learned is that at this time, more than any other, alignment and culture is really, really important. Because, you know, things are changing. People are sort of, you know, people can very easily feel like losers. Um, so what are the rituals that you have? For example, you know, we've got we very thoughtfully um, thought about the rituals in terms of like on a service, we're a service company. So we have a daily ritual where every store between 8 and 8.30 actually get together and talk about what worked well the previous day and what didn't. And how did we serve customers well or did not serve customers um, top-down alignment, obviously, is, is important. But I think the most important thing I think you talked about is horizontal alignment. And I think that starts with authenticity, uh, feedback that's open, vulnerability, and having conversations about where we are in a very honest and safe environment. And I think that kind of brings people together and then creates a great degree of alignment. So those are some of the things that I've sort of seen in, this, in these last four, five years.
0: That's that's, a good, that's great great learning indeed.
3: I love the I love the think think as though you're getting fired in the last week of December concept. <laughs> no, it's actually very funny, um, and I guess it's partly driven by the roots of where we all started our careers. There are so many aspects, Gopal, actually, of what you said and Candy, what you've talked about so far, that are so close to the way I think that actually it's a little eerie. So what I think about is. What if a new CEO is hired tomorrow? What would she do or what would he do? And, and you better be ready to do it. Otherwise, otherwise, you're not doing the right thing. And I think what you just described in your story and, Candy, your story of, uh, of Diet Coke and Coke Zero, etc., is, is um, the more successful you've been or a company has been or you've been or the team has been, the more there is a danger that you don't want to do anything that even a little bit blemishes that success uh, because you really are scared Uh, because sometimes the next thing is going to cannibalize the old thing. And are you ready ready to cannibalize your old stuff that has been so successful? That's the biggest problem with most humans.
0: Yep. No, I agree with you. Thank you. So, you know, with that, we've got one more thing to speak about. I mean, this is a, and really talking about breakthrough thinking, which is, you know, how do you truly take a stand to transform, by the way, this breakthrough thinking holds good for for anybody personally as well, but to take a stand and then understand what biases and beliefs are not working. And this is the tough part, I go to the point you just made, right, which is it's very tough to identify your own beliefs and biases that are not working and then decide what's the path to birth and be agile and dynamic, right, because things will always change and don't give up because inevitably it's not a straight line to success. And, and you know, you see Apple or Tesla as good examples. And talking of Diet Coke, I thought I'll, um, let's see if we can make a ad work. So Diet, Diet Coke, um, so this was 19, sorry, 2004. Diet Coke was successful, but declining, as I mentioned to you, Coke was declining, but it was 25% of the, $6 billion profit that Coke was making at that time. Um, and therefore, it was like a sacred cow, right? Nobody would touch it. But what was happening was we were losing users. We had a very narrow base of users, and each of them were drinking literally a 800 or 900 Diet Cokes a year, right? So we had a narrow base, drinking a lot, but reducing. And it was clear that... Coke is not going to succeed unless they did something different. So right. let, let me show you what Diet Coke stood for and why people would not touch it. I don't know if the if the if the commercial doesn't work, we will move on.
1: Candy, I don't think it's working. I don't think it's appearing on the screen.
2: It's coming on his screen. I can see from his glasses. He can't hear. Yeah, we can't see it.
1: He'll be able to hear only after he finishes the commercial. No.
4: Shankar, can you check? uh, His video is not coming on our screen. Can you play the YouTube? Uh, what is given the link?
0: Oh, was that visible?
1: No, it wasn't candy.
0: I'm going to avoid it, therefore.
1: So, who's visible candy. right now?
3: It's the pitch page Living Leadership Breakthrough Thinking.
1: in Hi, ah, yes, sir.
4: So right, I'm gonna, I'm
0: gonna avoid, I'm gonna avoid the thing. Let me finish the story and get to questions. Essentially, sure. Diet Coke was very much a women's drink, meant to, um, you know, for professional women who are looking after kind of their their figure in a way, and it was 25% of the profit. Uh, not growing, very narrow base, and of course, as I had mentioned earlier, we had also lost out on on the acquisition of Cateret to Pepsi. So at that point in time, um, my team and I kind of said, We've, "We're we're going to grow Coke after the decade of decline. And we're going to grow it by over twenty percent. How are we going to do this?" Um, we knew we had no real support of senior management because they were all scared of doing something that will bias. Uh, you know, that will ha- cannibalize Diet Coke, which is so important. They were all scared of because new Coke had bombed. They didn't want to do anything different with Coke. And eventually, they developed a product that won with men, right? And also won with, and because Diet Coke was such a woman oriented product. We initially launched the product. It wasn't a roaring success because it was a white can, uh, lesser known secret. And then eventually, uh, actually in Australia, they came up with this, said, I think the can should be black. So then we launched Coke Zero, which is in a black can. And today is actually um, between Coke and Diet Coke. Uh, in the U.S., they are, of course, bigger than Coke. But globally, they are you know, among the top profit earners uh, for Coke. And it could not get launched till this bias was there, till a new CEO came on board. So there are a number of things you've got to do. Um, And we didn't give up, right? Kept pushing the idea till we were able to get it launched. Even though we got no, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times. Because we believed in it and it turned out to be obviously uh, very successful. So with that, I'm going to get back. You know, I, I know we've got like five, 10 minutes. So let's get back to any last comments, Gopal or Tiger, and then let's get to questions.
1: I think, Candy. Just one question. You know, you, you talked about being in the box, and and I think Tiger referred to that as well. Because uh, one of the things that happens is that when things are not going well, um, you know, most people are propelled to action because that's easy and your backs are against the wall. But when things are going well, how do you peer around the bed and how do you change the context and how do you overcome that fear of inaction? I think it's something that is a real struggle. So. You know, and it seems to me that Diet Coke and Coke Zero were kind of in that zone because it wasn't that it was broken; it wasn't that it was declining, but you had an ambition to grow, and so that was a that was a big shift.
0: Yeah, I I think Opal, it's a, it's a great question. I think both of you mentioned kind of your possible way of doing it, thinking if I was a new CEO, if I get fired, you know, things you'll do. That's that's one mechanism, but I think this on breakthrough, I think. Um, Breakthrough versus business as usual. That's how I think about it, right? Business as usual, um, it's it's extremely comforting. It's, it's extremely good, especially if the organization is kind of reasonably successful. You know, why change anything that's not broken? People often say this, right? But I think it's really important for leaders at the top, but in general for anybody, uh, no matter which place in the organization you are, to say, what is my stand? And this stand could be often sometimes personal, but I'm talking from a business context. So you may be running a you know, sales region or a small office or whatever. What's the stand you take you know, that seems kind of so daring, so difficult that it's impossible to see an easy way there? A stand is not something you do that's an incremental change or a path is clear you've got to take a stand um, of something that is extremely difficult. That's a leap, right? That's something that you don't see a path too easily. Because once you do that, then you focus on saying, "Okay, what are the possible pathways? And there has to be more than one because you're not sure of the answer. Because if you knew, it's not not a breakthrough stand. So I, I find that this exercise to do is a useful exercise to force yourself into saying I will take a stand that is something that I don't know the answer for and then figuring out how to get there. But you know, everybody has their own way to do it. I mean, yeah. like, oh, your, your
3: way of saying no, that. Sir, you sir, actually, it. Your, yeah, your Coke story reminded me of something that I have become a big believer in over the years which is, I think I have to say, hats off to Coke for having someone who did not have any experience in Latin America and actually did not have any experience in beverages and say, you become the marketing leader of, um, of Latin America as a geography with a different culture and beverage. And typically if you, if you ask me, what is culture? One of the aspects of culture is what do you eat? What do you, how, those are the things that, that actually become very close to culture. And I'm a big believer that if you're trying to do breakthrough thinking, Bring people into the team who have no clue what you're talking about, who come at it in life with very different perspectives and experiences, and actually almost become a cat among the pigeons, uh, and create an environment as a leader where you actually support the cat among the pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> well done. That's so you, point. Yeah. So you, you so you, ha- you need to have some mavericks in the room. Uh, so diversity and all of that all, all, therefore becomes important. But it's actually important for business breakthrough, not just because you want to do good things. It's actually business breakthrough. So
1: The other thing I've seen, uh, Candy and Tiger, is that you know, a, a breakthrough uh, or a stand uh, really comes out of very, very deep conviction. And the deep conviction is not just based on the data that you see and the patterns that you see, but really of having seen it, having felt it, having smelt it, and this. There's, there's something more intangible about that conviction, which, you know, you can see when the person's talking to you and the way the eyes light up and, you know, and that is, that's a very important sort of intangible that helps you make that, that or take that stand.
3: But Gopal, here is the additional thing. One hundred percent agree with you, but I'll say one additional thing, which almost goes counter to what he just said. Deep conviction, deep belief, but a willingness to change it Because now the maverick in the room has convinced you that actually you should change. So you then stand up and say, guys, as of yesterday, my belief was this I'm beginning to change my belief because I think the world is changing. And here, Mary just told us that actually we have to think differently. That's a, that combo is a tough combo. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So Ms. Palra, any comments from you or, or should we go to some more questions?
2: Uh, I think we have, uh, you see, this is, uh, I left to myself, I would continue for another half an hour. But uh, I think we have the IPL pressure on us. Uh, it, it's it's uh, going very well. Let's take a couple of questions and then close. Yes. Is Since the yes, IPL sir. is there. Yes. Yeah, There's a question from, yeah, can I uh, go over the questions, sir? There's
4: a question yeah, yeah. from Sukan Star uh, Anand, you spoke about uh, how working at the Coke was a big change and learning experience. Can you tell us how? Uh, can you tell us how important was working uh, in totally different continent, South America?
0: Yeah, uh, Shikant, hi. Uh, at least we are speaking through this medium, so that's that's great. Um, I, I think that um, so when you Go from a very familiar organization where I knew everybody, where I had networks, where I could informally talk to anybody from bonds, or you know, over time I'd built in levers as well, into a completely new environment in the office where everybody speaks in Spanish to each other. I didn't understand a word, um, but even though kind of the working language is English, and A very American culture where,
1: you know, kind of people were extremely uh, direct.